Let's pray together. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we come to think about your word, that you would help us to concentrate and to be refreshed and encouraged as we think about the Apostle Paul and his single-minded focus upon Christ Jesus, his Lord. Grant us this, we pray in his name. Amen. I think it's a worthwhile thing, even if you may not agree with me, it's a good thing to have the message on the first Sunday of the new year. That's a bit special. That is special in the sense of somehow addressing the arrival of the new year and yet not forgetting the disappearance of the old. And so if you said something like goodbye and good riddance to 2021, you were probably not alone. And if you welcome 2022 with a sense of optimism, even cautious optimism, then you probably had company in doing that also. It's kind of hard to believe that January is upon us, the month that is named after the Roman god Janus, who was the god of doorways, beginnings and the rising and the setting of the sun, usually depicted for us as two bearded faces that are looking in opposite directions. One looking forward to the future, one looking back to the past. And that's where we are in the text that I've chosen this morning from Philippians 3, where the writer, the Apostle Paul, refers both to the future and to the past in relation to his desire to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we get to examine what Paul wrote in that context, it's important we get the context right, seeing I'm just plucking out a text that's about halfway through the letter of Paul to the Philippians. That's a necessary thing to do. We ought to keep in mind that this is one of Paul's prison letters that he wrote from Rome under house arrest, recorded in Acts chapter 28. And in writing to the church at Philippi that had been planted through his preaching of the gospel there, a church that may well have been the first church planted on European soil, this letter so far with its themes of joy and hardship and humility and love and service and hope beyond suffering and the supreme example of Jesus in relation to all these things has been a warm, encouraging letter to the church at Philippi. Paul has bared his heart as a pastor and now he's come to the point in chapter 3 of telling us of his own transformation, his own conversion from the self-righteous Pharisee that he once was to the gospel-preaching lover of Christ that he now was. In this immediate context, verses 1 to 11, Paul has just told us of his life in a way that reminds us of the man in the parable that Jesus told who found the pearl of great price and sold everything he had to get that pearl. Paul reveals in the same way that he's let go all the earthly, all the prized things that he once held to that came with being a self-righteous Pharisee in order to have Christ and to know him more and more. 
And now in these verses, which we read before, we find Paul talk about such things as goals, of striving forward, of straining for the prize of heaven, of living his life with this forward-looking focus, single-minded. His goal is nothing less than to know Christ more. He's just told us that in chapter 3, verse 10, that he had suffered the loss of all things, or put it more directly, he had thrown away so many things in his life that were part of his former life. He had treated them as rubbish, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was not a man to sit and rest on his laurels. In his estimation, there was so much more to know, so much more to experience, so much more to discover about knowing Christ and the attitude he was going to adopt in order to reach these things is what he's writing to us about this morning. But before we think about Paul, let's think about ourselves for a moment. Start of another year. Time is stretched out before us. Like you, your calendar might be quite, like me, your calendar might be quite empty. Who knows if this year will be your last year? Who knows if this will be the world's last year? Who knows if Christ will come? this year? How is your energy level when it comes to pressing on to know Christ more and more? How is your desire? Where does it rate among other desires that you have? You might be desiring a holiday. You might be desiring a swim. How does knowing Christ relate Have you reached a standard where you think, oh, I've gone far enough in the Christian life. I can just take it easy from here. Thus far and no further. Hopefully what Paul has to say will provide us some sort of impetus propelling us all in the direction that he took. Firstly, he writes of the attitude required to reach the goal of knowing Christ the attitude required to reach the goal of knowing Christ. Paul was something of a sports fan. In some of his letters we have wrestling references and boxing references and running references. In verses 12 to 16 of Philippians 3, we find one of these athletic images used. The picture that he paints is that of a runner in a race. Obviously, the runner has a goal in mind, to cross the line first. And obviously the runner has a strict training regime in order to reach the goal. These things, I think, are understood. In the same way, Paul has this to say about the stated goal of reaching the glories of heaven and knowing Christ more and more. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. To rephrase it, he's saying, I've got my eye on the goal. 
God is calling me onward and upward to the prize and I'm off and I'm running and I'm not turning around and I'm not turning back. I think it's understood that if you're in a race, you don't stop and pat yourself on the back for all the laps, all the laps you've completed, all the time that you've been in the lead. You don't stop until you cross the finish line. To do otherwise is to court with disaster. Uh, to imagine an Olympic athlete leading the field in a gold medal race who's just a few metres from the line in glory, who momentarily just looks around over their shoulder and after seeing no one on that side is passed by on the other side by another runner. See, taking your eyes off the finish line can prove to be dangerous. It goes without saying that this is not the attitude that Paul had. He was determined instead to let go of that which was behind him, to deliberately forget it in order that he might focus upon that which was ahead of him. It's an attitude we call single-mindedness and it means living with the goal in mind to the extent that anything that interferes with reaching that goal is treated as worthless. It's discarded. And Paul has just told us about that attitude in verses 1 to 11. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was high in the standings among his people. He was top of the class in everything, including his own brand of righteousness before God. But once his direction changed to pursue the, the goal of knowing Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, all these things were jettisoned like the cargo in the ship that was about to sink and which Jonah was asleep. It all became worthless. Everything became a hindrance. Everything had to go. And it all had to go in order that he might embrace Jesus all the more and all that comes with him, including this ultimate prize, the upward, heavenward call to join heaven's glories. Don't let the world tell you that you can live for selfish ambition and for Jesus at the same time. Don't let anybody fool you that you can somehow manage to follow Jesus and the things of the world. Hear what Jesus said. You cannot serve both God and money. It has to be one or the other. It has to be. And if you've chosen to serve God, if you've chosen to fix your eyes upon the goal that's heaven, take every action necessary to make sure that not even money gets in the way of that, to sway you off the goal or to dampen your enthusiasm for what's ahead. For it will try its hardest, as will the world around you, to dissuade you from pursuing that goal. To live single-minded is a hard slog. And Paul says, all of you who are mature should take such a view of things. Second, he writes in verses 17 to 19, 
of the obstacles encountered on the path to his goal of knowing Christ. The obstacles encountered. If you're on the path with single-minded intent, you will and you must encounter those who don't see things the way that you might see them or the scriptures might see them. Paul did. He called them enemies of the cross. He described them as people whose destiny is destruction, whose God is their stomach, whose glory is their shame. Their minds are on earthly things. These enemies could very well be religious people as Paul has already told us, are people who distort the truth of the gospel, people who teach false doctrines, such as faith plus circumcision, mentioned in chapter 2. But there are many other people in this world who fit into this category of being enemies of the gospel. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but have no hope in Christ's work and no desire to live for him. The sad fact is that most people live in what one author termed default mode. They go through life being acted upon by circumstances or other people but show no little, show little or no incentive to reach for anything higher. Life is for the weekend. Life is for comfort. Life is convenience. Life is for luxury. These are the driving forces behind them and their motto is eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's life in default mode. Even professing Christians fall into the same category. I didn't say genuine Christians. I said professing Christians. Professing Christians who live for self. Their greatest self-desire is for pleasure. That's the distinction between professing and genuine believers. Genuine believers consistently seek to live for Christ. They give up self-seeking. Their focus, living for self, is on the wrong goal. And that's tragically illustrated from the following story, which I can't vouch is true. It's said that once, when a huge passenger airbus approached an airport to land, a light that indicates that the landing gear is all in place failed to come on. The light failed to come on. The plane flew in a large looping circle while the cockpit the cockpit crew checked out the light failure. Just trying to work it out if it was the landing gear that was defective or just the light bulb. To begin with, the flight engineer fiddled with the bulb, but he tried to remove it, but he couldn't. It wouldn't budge. Another of the member of the crew tried to help out and then another. By and by, if you can believe it, all the eyes in the cockpit were on the bulb that refused to be dislodged from its socket. No one noticed that the plane was losing altitude until it dropped into a swamp and killed many people. See, while an experienced crew of pilots messed around with a light bulb, a whole plane load of people suffered at their hands. 
the crew forgot the most basic rules of all the air. Don't forget to fly the plane. In life, one of the most basic rules is this. What is seen invisible, what is seen and visible, is not worth living for. Don't fall for the devil's lie that who ends with the most toys wins. Don't allow petty distractions of worldly interest rob you of the greatest thing imaginable. To chase after the temporal, to forget the eternal, is surely to court with disaster and can lead to consequences of eternal proportions and miss out on the goal altogether like the seed that grew up among the thorns that Jesus spoke about, failed to reach maturity because it was choked by those thorns, things which Jesus identified in the parable as the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. In other words, good things that got in the way, which became bad things when they become obstacles to reaching the main goal, to know and to be like, and to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. Thirdly, verse 20 to 21, Paul writes of the complete transformation that was part of his goal in knowing Christ. The complete transformation he expected. Please don't misunderstand what Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us. He's not telling us here to sit back and be passive and just wait for the return of Christ and wait to be changed. The language he uses here is not one of sitting back. It's no thought of laziness or laid-backness, but of striving ahead. See, in the context of what Paul wrote in verses 1 to 11, what Paul is reminding us is this, that the same power source that will change your earthly bodies into heavenly ones is not far away from you in the distant future, but is present. It's a present reality. It's available to you now. Paul doesn't intend to wait for the return of Christ to start and finish this transformation, for he knows that the transformation has begun. And what he writes isn't a call to ourselves to resign ourselves to an attitude of just waiting around for the day when Christ appears, but it's a reminder to refocus on our ultimate object and draw on the power of his life with an ultimate sense of certainty. And the reason for this sense of hope and certainty is because heaven is a sure reality. Some people can't understand that. They don't understand how we're certain of heaven. And they ask, how can you believe in something that you've never seen? After all, none of us have been to heaven as far as I'm aware. There's no scientific or logical proof that it exists. Astronauts went up. They didn't see heaven. But Paul tells us that the promised goal of heaven is certain because of Christ. He is the one 
who has secured your place at the finish line, his perfectly obedient life, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection are the undeniable proof that heaven is yours, that he has won it for you. And therefore we are citizens of heaven now and we are awaiting eagerly a saviour from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Every time we have an election, state or federal, we exercise our right to vote, which is a proof of who we are. We are citizens of this country. Paul tells us, keep that thought in mind, considering heaven. You are citizens there if your hope is in Christ. And we have proof of that. The proof is seen in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. An analogy from property ownership might help for, because most of you understand that. As a property owner, you have a title to the land, but you might not fully physically own the land but probably still have a mortgage. Even then, with the mortgage, the land is considered yours. It's the same with heaven. We're not there. We can't see it. We don't physically own it. We're not physically present on it. But it's yours. It's yours because of Christ. And one day, he will call and come and take us to what is ours and yours. In the meantime, we want to live our lives on earth to prepare ourselves for his return. Don't ever forget your Saviour, who came once in humility to save you, is coming again in majesty and glory to take you home. And we will have the proof that we live and belong in that heavenly city. When our Saviour comes again, Paul says, he'll transform these lowly, sin-wracked bodies to be like his glorious body. All sinfulness, the weaknesses and the consequences of sin will be purged away forever. Jesus will make it possible for us to live in that heavenly place because we'll have bodies for that purpose. And though we can't understand how that's going to work, it doesn't matter that we don't know all the detail now. Paul doesn't satisfy our curiosity. He just tells us what we need to know when he says that Jesus will accomplish this through his amazing, wonderful power. If you've ever set out on a journey of reaching a goal, whether that goal be to finish a project or do something around the house or learn a musical instrument or write a book or study hard for a degree, whatever the goal was, you know you simply cannot afford to be slack in pursuing a goal. It was a foggy morning in 1952 when a young woman named Florence Chadwick waded into the water with the aim of swimming the 40 kilometres or 35 kilometres between Catalina Island and the coast of California. Long distance swimming was not new to her. She'd been the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. 
But though the water was numbing cold that day, the fog was the bigger problem. It was so thick that she could hardly see the boats in her support party and after completing 15 hours of swimming toward her goal, she asked to be taken out of the water. Her trainer encouraged her to keep going since he felt they surely must be close to land by now. But when Florence looked, all she saw was fog. So she quit. One and a half kilometres from her goal. Later she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I think I might have made it. It wasn't the cold, wasn't the fear, wasn't the exhaustion. She couldn't see her goal. 2022 has begun. And what kind of year it's going to be is immaterial because circumstances ought not put you off straining towards the goal that God has for you in Christ. Don't put your hope on the things of the world. This is not a place to set down permanent roots. We're only pilgrims here passing through. We're not to become attached to this world because this world is never going to be our home. Instead, we're to be looking up and beyond what we see to what's beckoning into the future. The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's the goal. There's something that's eternal. There's something worth pursuing. And so the challenge is, like Jesus did, keeping your eyes on the goal. Proving faithful each minute, each step, each decision, each challenge, each closed door, each open door and keep on making steps toward the goal and ensure that nothing and no one causes you to miss out on the greatest reward that's coming for those who live for Jesus and refuse to live for lesser things. That's what I want for this year. Is that what you want for this year? To live for Christ and refuse to live for lesser things. Let's pray that God would give us grace to do that. We are in that position, Heavenly Father, of having the year stretched out before us, not knowing what it may hold, but knowing that you hold it. We thank you for this reminder from the pen of Paul, who was a man not to beat about the bush, but to live for something that he saw was worthwhile and enduring. We see the goal. We know what it is. It's that wonderful prize that you have for all of your people and for all who have loved the appearing of the Lord Jesus. Yet we have this problem. We live in this world. 
We live in the now. Please help us not just to let these things pass over us, not to forget them as we leave here, but to take the challenge on board and to focus our hope on Christ and to live for him and to let go of lesser things that might weigh down the ship so that we might pursue him all the more faster and run all the more stronger and see that goal all the more clearer as we thank you for him who for the joy set before him endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of God. So grant us grace, we pray, that we might do these things well. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Just two verses of Be Thou My Vision.